Welcome everyone to Bulldog Bites, practical tips for busy GCs. I'm your host, Mark Enriquez, a partner in Womble Carlisle's business litigation practice group. With me today is Chris Ferry, who's general counsel for American Residential Services. Chris, thank you so much for having us here. Thank you, Mark. Good to see you. Great. Chris, why don't we start by, we're going to talk today about arbitration and litigation, um, but I think it'd be helpful for our listeners to just know a little bit more about your background and the company. So just tell tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Sure. I've been with ARS now for uh, going on 11 years. My background, I was in public accounting before I uh, went to law school. I've been with ARS my entire legal career. ARS, for those who don't know, we're um, the largest... uh, heating, air conditioning, plumbing service contractor for residential light commercial in the country. We have uh, 75 corporate-owned locations that operate under various trade names, depending on the jurisdiction they're in. A lot of them are legacy brand names uh, that, uh, you know, small, if you want to call mom-and-pop shops, grew over time that we came in and and purchased and uh, maintained those names, often maintained those uh, management teams to operate the businesses for us. Um, We've got more than 6,000 employees across the country, uh, and we do you know, approximately a billion dollars in revenue annually. Wow. So. No, that's amazing. And I think, I know I was amazed to see the scope of ARS because, you know, because you operate under different brand names, I didn't realize until I looked at it, like Brothers Heat and Air, which is big in the Charlotte area, and I see their trucks everywhere as an ARS company. Right. And I bet a lot of listeners don't realize, you know, they may be yeah. using ARS without even realizing it because it's a company that's been Very in their, true. In their yeah. community a long time. But yeah. no, well, congratulations to you and the company for growing to that size. That's an impressive feat. What I thought, particularly someone that's been in-house for a while, and obviously with that kind of scope, you're going to have disputes arise from time to time. Today's topic is one that I get asked all the time about as a litigator, and I have some thoughts, but I hear different thoughts from different GCs, and that is, you know, is arbitration better than litigation, and how do you decide whether you want an arbitration clause in a contract or a litigation clause, or if parties suggest arbitration, how do you do it? And I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all situation. I know I've got some good friends that are general counsel that say, I'll never arbitrate anything because I don't trust it. I need an appeal system. I need the rules. I've had other very smart folks say, you know, arbitration is so much quicker and faster and the courts are so jammed, you know, we don't like it at all. So that's really what I thought we could do is use this as an opportunity to explore pros and cons. Tell us, tell me a little bit about, I guess, your general views and maybe what your general practices are as a company in terms of arbitration versus litigation and how to Sure. Well, I think, you know, in general, obviously no one wants to litigate. At least I hope you don't. I mean, it's... uh from my perspective, first of all, I consider myself a better business person than a lawyer. I don't have a litigation background. I've got uh, mergers and acquisitions type background, but litigation comes with the territory. Um, I'm uh, not a fan of inefficiency, if you will, and I think that litigation often can, whether it's litigation that a company is initiating or a litigation that a company has been the subject of targeted as a defendant, it can often be an extensive impediment to operations. I think arbitration and, and I think in any event, when you litigate, at some form or another, usually you're going to, the concept of some form of ADR, term of dispute resolution, is going to come into play, whether it's via a contract that requires uh, alternative dispute resolution or for practical purposes, you usually mediate, often may, may arbitrate, you know, if, if it's non-binding and then litigate, you know, you never know. But I like arbitration. I tend to lean that way when possible, obviously, depending on the circumstances, one, I feel it's more efficient. And two, I think it often removes a lot of the emotional elements that come with a lot of litigation. You know, when you're not necessarily speaking to, and I don't want to sound condescending to jury pools, but, you know, often uninformed individuals versus, you know, one person who's often more versed on the procedures and the facts to make an informed decision uh, versus taking the the emotion out of it that a, a grandstanding, if you will, plaintiff's lawyer could play to. So I think those are great points. Well, and you raised... Several of the points that I think are often key determinants on uh, in comparisons between arbitration and litigation. And certainly the decision maker is one that is different because if you've got a technical issue or something that's complicated, it can be very challenging to know how a jury of six or 12 
regular men on the street, women on the street serve. I've, I've tried dozens of jury trials, but it's always nerve-wracking because you don't know if they're going to really be able to understand what the issues are. Obviously, I view my job as a litigator to make it in plain enough language that they can understand, but I do think it's a challenge. Um, and so the idea of an arbitrator who's typically a lawyer, sometimes a retired judge, you know you're going to get a certain level of understanding of your, of your issue, and I think that's one of the big uh, determinants. Um, I guess the other one you touched on that I hear over and over again is the cost and inefficiency of litigation. And again, as a litigator, the discovery costs, and particularly with electronic discovery and the fact that you may have 100,000 emails that someone's now got to review and code and figure out what's privileged, what's relevant, how's it going to be produced, those costs can be dominant. And now in federal cases, you've got e-discovery essentially in every case. And many states have essentially the same e-discovery rules. North Carolina just adopted some. Several other states have have e-discovery. So that is a significant, significant cost factor. So do you like using arbitration clauses in your contracts? Do you use them in some? Do you have a, what's your philosophy on that? Yes and no. I think it kind of depends on the contract. I think from uh, and you're seeing this, it's a fairly hot topic now uh, with regard to arbitration provisions with employees, you know, having a alternative dispute resolutions with employees. A lot of the, when you're a large company like this and we've got so many employees over, a, you know, with a large geographic footprint, you know, we're dealing with various state laws and various state courts that may have more employee friendly uh, interpretations of certain provisions that may not necessarily be practical to the business that we're operating. However, well intentioned a legislature may be. It's just, you know, it's unrealistic to think that they really have an understanding of every business that's going to operate in that climate. I can tell you historically, you know, without disclosing too much, in, in this consumer service-oriented industry, at times you could have employment cases, in, you know, employment litigation in cases where the employee is for some reason or another alleging some wrongdoing on the employer can make up, you know, approximately half of all the litigation we're dealing with. But wow. they account historically for close to 90% of the litigation expense because it's so expensive. And now what we've done is is to bring in arbitration, we have a dispute resolution process, if you will, that we have employees execute upon commencement of employment. And it's, it's been a game changer as far as driving down litigation cost. We found that a lot of plaintiff's attorneys, if they're not gonna have that avenue to a state courtroom immediately like they otherwise would have, and they're gonna be at the very least uh, faced with the you know challenging the arbitration agreement, they just don't see that it's worth their while. Uh, and if they know they can't get in front of that jury to draw that sympathy and create that emotion to get a decision done that way, then you know it's not, may not be worth the risk for them. So you know I, I've found that in those types of uh, arrangements with employees, it has been uh, impactful and, uh, and a positive for the business. And uh, it, as you know, Mark, in working with you, we do a lot of uh, subcontract work for large contractors as well. Uh, and it's very common to see arbitration provisions. Generally, they're put in there by the contractor, hoping that it will be favorable to the to the contractor. But you know, it's been successful for us as well as a large business being a, a subcontractor too. So yeah, no, that's great. Well, I appreciate in particular sharing the story with the employee clauses because I do think that's a, something that there's been a lot of interest in, some concern about the enforceability of those clauses, and some decisions I know in California that seem right. to be hostile to to that idea. But I like the idea of, you know, sending a message to a plaintiff, you're not just going to be able to run to the to the jury and tell your sob story. Right. And and, and, and and just, you know, full disclosure, we, you know, it wasn't done entirely just to combat costs associated with employee litigation. We've also found that to be tremendously effective and just better communicating and resolving disputes with employees before things get out of hand and someone even feels the need that do I need to file a lawsuit or go to the EEOC? And obviously they're free to do that despite the agreement, but it's been effective in resolving concerns that employees bring to us and that we, there's a, a very specific process that's laid out for us to, uh, to deal with those things. That's great. Tell me a little bit if you can, I mean, do you use AAA or some other form or is we there? Do. Okay. So we do. And it's laid out in the contract. Exactly. Right. So the contract would say, we're going to use AAA or we're going to try mediation first. Yes. And then, yes. This so is it's got a step-by-step resolution process, process does. that's spelled out. So mm-hmm. employees know, and you know, if we're going to go down this road, this mm-hmm. is the way to do it. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And that is, I mean, I know we're talking about arbitration, but I do think with ADR in general and mediation, I've become a real fan of contractual requirements for something like mediation because often it's a communication issue. Mm -hmm. And I don't do a lot of employment litigation except in the non-compete context. But it is often, I think, you get the parties and force them to sit and talk. That's something that can be productive. And and I've seen some like construction contracts that require like a C-level meeting where instead of just the project managers yelling at each other, you say, we're going to take our CEOs or CFOs or some other and force them to meet, you know, in person for an hour and see if they can hammer it out. And, you know, if half the time it gets resolved that way, you've saved yourself a ton of money litigating. And at a minimum, maybe you've crystallized where that dispute is. So even if they come out saying we're going to court, both sides have a better understanding of what we're going to face and where the other side is. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, stepping back and trying to, you know, just be pragmatic about how you look at the entire process, even though it is arbitration that you're submitting yourself to, I can't think of an arbitration I've ever been involved in where the arbitrator is not acting as a mediator the entire time, trying to get the parties to resolve the dispute informally short of his or her ultimate ruling, which if you're litigating, you know, we often see that happen anyway. You, I mean, like I said, you're going to likely mediate before you litigate. So it's kind of just uh, speeding up the inevitable, if you will. I think that makes sense. Now, how do you, one of the, for the people that don't like um, arbitration, I typically hear two or three complaints. I think the biggest concern I hear is the lack of any appeal process. I think there's this sense that if uh, the arbitrator gets it wrong and goes off on a wild hair and does something crazy, I'm stuck with it. If you had any experience with that? Have you been burned by that? Do you stay up at night worrying about a lack well, of Well, I think it's like with anything else. I think it's really no different than assessing litigation, which is really just measuring risk, correct? It's That is a risk you run, that you have an unfavorable decision, but it's understanding that up front, I think, and, and being able to make decisions based on you know your own risk tolerance. I mean, it's, it, litigation, you may or may not proceed if you don't like the potential outcomes. And again, um, when you see something that is potentially uh, not a desirable outcome. You may be more inclined to resolve something short of the process, seeing it's you know getting to the end of the process, if you will. I think that's a good point. And I guess I, I went to an interesting seminar on appellate practice, and nationwide, apparently, the reversal rate is under 10%, meaning 90% of the time you appeal, they end up finding a way to affirm what's been decided. So I think people take comfort in the appeal. And obviously, if it's a crazy decision, maybe it gets appealed. But I, I think sometimes we're too comfortable in the idea of, oh, yeah, it'll all get straightened out on appeal, and that the appeal court is actually going to straighten it out. Right. And, you know, that's just a group typically of maybe three judges in most jurisdictions that are going to decide whether they think there was a bad enough problem below that it had to be addressed. That's that's a surprising number to me that it was that high. I would have guessed lower, but interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the second objection I sometimes hear to arbitration is how are we going to figure out about the case without doing discovery, that it's going to be a trial by ambush. And I guess some arbitrators have addressed that by allowing limited discovery, although then I hear complaints that, well, if they're going to let us do depositions, why do it? I guess I'd welcome your thoughts on, is discovery important? How do you survive without it? Or or is it essentially you're getting some discovery in arbitration? It's just a more manageable bite. Yeah, I I think that's a good way to put it. I think a lot of the discovery that you see um, with most of the litigation is when you get down to it, how much of it is is really necessary for the information that you really, really need to prosecute your claim or defend your position? And how much of it is there as throwing paper and, and make work? And I think arbitration, again, it's geared towards efficiency, if you will. It's gonna be it's gonna be allowed, I think, when necessary to to the extent it's necessary to reach a resolution. I think it would be inaccurate and naive to suggest that you don't need discovery. Now, having said that, there may be some cases that are so simple that, you know, the parties are well-equipped with their own information to present their case. But I think, realistically speaking, some form of exchange of information, just if anything else, in the interest of fairness, um, and to not misinform the decision-maker is necessary. I think that's been my experience, too. Arbitrators don't like trial by ambush. So if it's really a situation where you need to understand where the other side's coming from, whether it's a pre-exchange of documents or limited depositions or a preview of testimony, I think they're trying to do it fairly to avoid prejudice. And, and most arbitrators try to balance the cost 
and the fairness. So I think it's it's often good. I was amazed at the numbers. I was looking at the AAA. Um, that's the American Arbitration Association for those listeners that haven't used it. In 2015, over 8,000 disputes were submitted to them that fell into the business dispute category, and it was over $13 billion of claims adjudicated. So a lot of businesses are trusting those disputes to to the AAA and to other arbitral groups, and they're not the only game in town. We do quite a bit of work with JAMS, and have had some good experience with them. They're also smaller community-organized arbitration groups where a bunch of lawyers get together and offer those services. So I think it's been around for a while, but it does, it's not going anywhere. People are going to continue to arbitrate. Yeah, I would agree. As long as it's an effective tool, you're going to have people that explore it as an option to resolve a dispute. You mentioned your employment arbitration provision. Has that been challenged in court? Has anybody tried to challenge it as unenforceable? Um, Well, I mean, again, as you see now, you're seeing just these these, uh, arrangements in general being challenged in various jurisdictions. Our specifically, we, we have had to uh, you know, file motions to compel to enforce the agreement. And, and thus far, ours has withstood all the scrutiny that it has faced. We've obviously been uh, given very good counsel how to uh, to keep it in place, uh, given the various, uh, you know, the di- dynamic law, if you will, in that area. But um, yeah, so far, so good. That's great. Before I get to a question from our audience, I wanted to ask you a question I've, I've been asking each general counsel that doesn't necessarily relate to arbitration, but I'm, I'm curious what you see as the biggest changes in the general counsel office or your position in the next five to 10 years and what you may be doing to, to prepare for that change. What does your crystal ball say about the role maybe of you, but also of general counsels in general? Right, good question. Um, and you know, I, I think given the, the wide array of industries and the various roles that GCs play, to, you know, depending on the business they're in. I, I don't know that there's one thing. I can tell you in this business what I tell my people, and this is what uh, my fellow senior executives have told me. And when I started out as just an associate in-house counsel, I was told very early on, um, you know, we, we're here. I, I think the most difficult part of my job is adequately supporting our frontline field operations that generate revenue while not in any way sacrificing compliance, because at the end of the day, really compliance is gonna be the main role of an in-house legal department. But I think there's a way to do that now, and, and I tell my people, like I said, I've been told, you know, have your people you know, do their job. They, they are lawyers, but they've gotta think like business people. We've got to do more than just making sure that we're doing our job and support the field from a legal perspective, but we've gotta, uh, I don't want my department here to be perceived as an impediment to their operations. I think historically a lot of legal departments get a bad rap for, oh no, I don't want to deal with legal. Oh, they're, you know, it always, they're the roadblock, they're the bottleneck, they're the problem for getting things done. So I think that is for us and I think that will continue to be in the future as business grows and technology advances and there's more various, unfortunately, um, regulation that continues to impact all aspects of business. It's going to continue to be our job to find a way to think like business people to support the business. Great. That's helpful and interesting. And I do, I think that that partnership view as opposed to the we're the check on the business folks is something I've heard from other other folks that I've been doing these podcasts with. And listeners may remember the one we did on internal politics and managing expectation and how to help. I think that ties in very nicely with what you're saying about the role of being a facilitator instead of a blocker, right? while still preserving what you have to do for compliance. So you can't just, it doesn't mean you say, do whatever you want, sign any contracts you want. You've got to have some control, but we're here to help make sure you don't get into trouble instead of we're here to tell you what you can't do. Right. And my, my uh, I use the line all the time and I, I'll steal it from my, uh, my predecessor, my mentor who I took over for about going on four years ago now, but he would always tell me that um, if you're not serving the customer, you better be serving those that do. So we kind of view ourselves as a corporate legal department, as a glorified customer service team, and our customers are our, our managers and operations folks across the country that are you know managing our business and, and generating profit. That's great. We did get a question from our listening audience, and the question is about venue. It says, I've started using arbitration clauses in my contracts, but I'm not sure whether to specify a venue provision in the contract and how do you decide what venue works best? What's been your experience with that? Do you specify venue or how do you address it? Um, 
couple things. It is not specified in the agreement like I spoke to about with employees. And generally, when we're on the other side of interpreting these, it's generally because we've signed a contract with, like I said, like a, a large contractor. I think, again, as much as you can try to spell out in a contract, there's you know, hopefully less that will be disputed down the road. Something that's omitted, you know, omissions often lead to debate. And I think when, you know, the less omissions you have, the less hopefully dispute and debate you'll have about those issues. So I, w- I would recommend, again, spelling out as much as you can to the extent possible. Yeah, I think that's a good suggestion. I know in the construction context, the, uh, the AIA forms default to the venue where the project is located, mm-hmm. uh, both for choice of law and for the venue of any arbitration, unless the parties agree otherwise. Obviously, if you've got a good enough relationship, you can agree we're all going to go to Vegas for the arbitration. You know, that's, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that, that kind of thing makes sense in construction. I guess it's interesting in employment because it seems to me you can make an argument to say, hey, you've got a contract with us. Come you know, arbitrate here in Memphis where the headquarters is. The employee may say, wait a minute, I'm working up in Virginia. I don't want to have to come to Memphis. It should be where I'm working. So I don't, I don't know if you've had those disputes, but I guess that would seem to be the a potential tension in where, you know, where venue. I, I think be. you're right. We, you know, we we have not that I can recall have we had such an issue, but I, I think you're you're exactly right. And what I can say, I think, is you're you're seeing a lot of courts that are going to be more, leaning more employee friendly in that regard. And anything that's viewed as you know overly burdensome to an employee is probably not going to hold up as much as you know, the other party would like. Yeah, I think, and and you bring up a good point, and I know in looking at some of the recent decisions on unconscionability, right, there's a focus, the court's worried about people being taken advantage of with the clause, but they also recognize both federal government and now most states have said, you know, their policy is to promote arbitration. You got the Federal Arbitration Act, and the courts have said that that's a liberal promotion of arbitration. So I do think it's important to have a clause that doesn't read as an overbearing clause, saying, yes, you're based in Alaska, but you have to appear in person the next day. Right. You know, in Memphis, that may be viewed as an unreasonable restriction. So that may be, you know, there may be a way and maybe not specifying gives you the ability to say we're not dictating a place and yet it's, you know, it's room for negotiation. So I, I think that's a good tip, though, that if it reads oppressive, it's a concern. And if not, and I know, frankly, that the AAA has worked hard on some of their model clauses to try to make it fair and balanced and point out that this is not a, you know, an oppressive tool. And that's in their interest because they want people to keep using them. <laughs> so they're, they've tried to say, look, this is a, you know, it's a mutual part clause. Either party can ask for arbitration. It's not one-sided. I know the very early employment agreements essentially said, well, we can sue you anywhere we want, but if you're going to bring claims, it has to be an arbitration. Courts have looked with disfavor on these unilateral once I gets to pick. So I think that's a good reminder and point to close on, which is if you're going to go arbitration and you don't want to get it to be unconscionable, don't, you know, you may not try to really bring the hammer down on the arbitration because right. you subject the whole clause to a challenge. I would agree. I think anything that's going to be perceived as, you know, especially the drafting party, a big company to gain an unfair advantage against the, you know, what a court or a uh, judge may perceive as a you know, less equipped employee as far as financial means and just knowledge in general. I think you're exactly right that they're not going to allow that to, to stand up. Right. The other audience question I had is, I like arbitration, but I'm not sure how to pick the best arbitrator. I welcome any tips you can give me on that. <laughs> and that's, yeah. and for our listening audience, obviously sometimes you may have an opportunity to pick. Sometimes the AAA or whoever you're using will do it. But I, I do wonder, do you have tips on, sometimes it's a strike process, right? At the AAA, they may give you 10 names and right. you're going to go through and eliminate the ones you don't like. No, what, right. What, and I, this is an area where I, I give a lot of deference to the local council that I've hired. I mean, they're going to have, you know, hopefully if they don't personally have experience with the suggested uh, panel or options that's been presented, they're going to have uh, someone in their firm or their network of other lawyers who does. But yeah, we, we have a, pro- and, you know, I don't, it's not a formal process of, of vetting, but uh, I'm going to, you know, ask the counsel that I've hired to assist to, you know, what do we know about each of these? Let, let's do some homework, you know, poll your, uh, your partners um, and anyone else you may have. Let's, let's get some, some idea of who we may be dealing with here and, and, you know, start with that and, uh, you know, whittle the list down from there. 
No, I think that's a great point. And I know Womble has a database of right. mediators, arbitrators, so I can look up and see comments and experiences from other people. And I still will often do the blast email saying, hey, here's a list of three um, you know, that we've narrowed it down to. Let me know how you would rank them or if you've got experience. I do think that's it's helpful to get that experience. And again, for the listeners, we're not looking for people that we know are going to rule in your favor. By definition, they're probably not a good arbitrator if they've got strong biases that they always rule for the subcontractor or always rule for the employer. What we're looking for are people that are thoughtful, considerate, right. uh, you know, will spend the time and energy to read and understand the issues and give a thoughtful decision. Yeah, you, you, so. you took the words out of my mouth. I, I, uh, I think there's probably nothing more frustrating than when, you know, you're at the point where you're in, in a dispute, you're going to arbitration, you spent time, money, putting together drafting documents, a, a statement summarizing your position to summarize it for the, for the arbitrator and to think that there are some out there that really, like you said, will not even read it. And you can tell when you get before them, you, you know that they're uninformed because they haven't taken the time. So you're exactly right. I think the picking of the person that's going to actually do their job. Yeah. Great. Well, before we get to the quiz show part, that I want to end on a pet peeve I have. There's been a tendency, and, and I see this, frankly, more in some of our my own transactional partners. For a while, there was this idea of arbitration. Will Each side will pick an arbitrator, and those two arbitrators will pick a third. As someone that's tried to litigate in that environment, I think you often end up in the problem that we just addressed. So the idea... If each side is picking one arbitrator, they're by definition going to try to find someone who is biased and inclined to, you know, rule in their favor. And I think that's inevitable of who, you know, this is a unilateral choice. We need to get someone on our side so we have one vote. We know the other side's going to get somebody who's biased in their direction to have one vote. And then the whole case may be decided on who, which of the two arbitrators have better leverage to get arbitrator number three in that's going to agree with them. That's not how the system's supposed to work. And in theory, you're supposed to each pick neutral arbitrators, but if you've got the whole universe, you're going to pick the person that maybe isn't biased but is good friends with or has some tie to your side, and that's inevitable. So I would urge listeners not to use those let's each pick one clauses. The AAA you know, default system doesn't work like that. They will, you know, The parties can agree on an arbitrator. That's great. If you agree on three, that's great. If you can't agree, the AAA gives you a panel. Each side does strikes, right. and then the AAA will point it. Jams works in a similar fashion where you have strikes to, to narrow it down. So I, if you're drafting arbitration clauses, I really dislike the each side pick one. It has some apparent, you know, some initial appeal of, well, this is great. We can each pick and let those two choose. But I think it, it's fraught with danger going forward. So on that... Any other tips you would give to people for arbitration no. before we get to the quiz? No, I think that's a good one. I, w I would, you know, I think you make a good point. You know, people could say to the blue in the face, hey, I'm not picking because I think this person's going to rule in my favor. But if that's not true, certainly the reverse is. You're, no one is knowingly going to pick someone they know is going to rule against them. So uh, I, I would echo your, your comments, Martin. Yeah. That's a good point. All right. I am curious, you talked extensively about um, employment. Uh, and arbitration with employment uh, employee uh, disputes. Is there another area that you are you have a particular uh, strong opinion on when an arbitration clause should be included? Um, good question. You know, we have explored adding arbitration or dispute resolution uh, provisions to our standard. Uh, residential customer contracts. And again, it's uh, one of the things we're, again, I don't want to reel too much, kind of struggling with, I, I don't, I think it's the wrong word, but, you know, we don't want to give the perception to a customer that we're trying to gain an advantage and even hint that, hey, we think there will ever be some dispute. But we have found in the very rare instances we're in litigation with customers and we do, you know, we transact, you know, we engage in over one and a half million transactions annually. So, you know, we're touching a lot of people in a lot of homes uh, and stuff happens. Um, we're not perfect, but it's the one or two of those that unnecessarily get hijacked by um, a, a poorly intentioned plaintiff's lawyer, if you will. And those instances have led us to consider, should we add some more protection for us in those customer contracts to avoid this completely unnecessary path that something may take for something that's otherwise resolved in a, in a very amicable way via customer service, not litigation. But again, um, you're seeing uh, litigation in, the, in that area too. Contracts with customers, arbitration agreements, 
being uh, held to be, you know, unlawful, if you will. So, yeah. What about with um, vendors and other and partnerships, where, where I know some of our um, attorneys who do uh, work with um, contractors and developers, some of them have a, a, a pretty strong uh, feeling about including arbitration clauses in those uh, negotiations in those contracts because you're working on a project, something comes up, if you go to, if it goes to litigation, your project is now more than likely going to be put on hold versus arbitration or some other alternative dispute um, resolution system, they're more likely to be able to kind of continue the work. No, yeah, I think it's a great point. And it goes back to one of my earlier comments about efficiency. And that's kind of a two-edged sword there. You know, if, if your litigation not only makes it, it's inefficient in that it's expensive, but also the point you make, it, it often suspends the, you know, um, revenue-producing side of things. So excellent point that arbitration can help. It's just inherently more efficient in itself, but it also will allow the, the, the two sides to uh, at least seemingly continue to, to operate while the dispute is, is being resolved, as we know, Mark. Yeah, you know, no, we, we know, and I do think with. that's important that you can, you know, can continue on while you're arbitrating, and it gets very hard to continue on when you're litigating. In theory, you can do it, but the reality is you're out there in that public adversarial context or taking depositions. It's almost impossible to maintain a business relationship when you're literally in court and calling people as witnesses. Have you have either have you both um, experienced that arbitration does more often than not, or, or maybe it does, but it's really not that often salvage a business relationship that, that you're able to go through that process and then out the other side, you know, you wind up working together again on on something. I you know I can't recall offhand a engaging in one and then you know continuing if you know if there was a contractual arrangement um i can see how it would be easier to do so coming out of an arbitration than coming out of litigation though i certainly can i mean it's again it's it's a process that really the parties have upfront agreed to participate in versus unwillingly being a participant in another. And, um, and I've seen I've seen that happen a number of times in a mediation, which you can do as a precondition to arbitration right. or litigation. And in fact, I think it's a good idea to require that. Often one you know, the idea of a mediation is is there a way we can both end up being winners or at least not as big a losers. And often one of those terms may be, look, if you will continue to do business with us or commit to do business with us for two more years, we're willing to give up or reduce our claim on this because we do think you messed up here, but we think you're a good company. And I've had been in a number of mediations where that's on the table. And there is a the win-win is if we can keep doing business together, you know, we'll we'll hopefully both come out ahead. And if we have some terms to make that happen, all of a sudden the pain of this conflict is mitigated and we can try to find a way to go forward. So and in theory that can happen in arbitration too. Arbitration is a final binding ruling. So by that time you actually get an arbitrator ruling I think it's harder to go forward to be a winner and a loser, but I think mediation is often a great avenue for that potential win-win creative business solution about isn't there a way we can work together. And I do think mediation is worth advocating for. The other thing I thought of with your question, Brian, is I get asked sometimes, what about a threshold where we say we'll arbitrate any dispute under 100,000 or 500,000 or a million? The idea being particularly for my colleagues that are really scared about arbitration, if this is a bet the company class action or huge case, it's going to be a $100 million decision, and they want the appeal, they want all the discovery, they want all the depositions, you know, you could have some threshold that you have to go to litigation. And I think that can be a good balance to say for our routine business disputes, we're going to send them all to arbitration, but really big ones will reserve the right for both sides to litigate. The one downside is you can end up in a fight about, is this really a $50,000 dispute or a $500,000 dispute? Or do all they have to do is say, this is a $2 million dispute, now you're out of, then they can file a lawsuit? Because we know the plaintiff's lawyers are always going to say, you know, this is a $2 million dispute, this is a terrible, and now they're in court. And the whole idea was to take, you view this as a garden variety, $50,000. Well, I was going to say, that's that's often what you find is the, the reason the parties are arguing to begin with is what what is the dollar value of the dispute? Right. I mean, uh, again, I go back to the recent one you and I had together, Mark, and that, I mean, that was, 
as we saw, the, the first session we had with a mediator prior to arbitration, the spectrum in which the two <laughs> parties were off was, right. you know, both parties thought that the other party owed them a lot <laughs> of, money. of money. It That's wasn't right. like That's right. uh, they I couldn't mean, even yeah. agree on who owed who. Um, so that yeah. could be very difficult. Yeah. It is. And and then, then you've set up an initial dispute about where you're even going to be because you can't reach agreement. Right. So, again, I, that may be an option, but there's cautions, you know, around using that approach. I do think it's a, you know, I think it's a challenge. One thing I haven't seen done much, but I've been thinking about is you could have a, some kind of an appeal or review process for any awards that exceeded a threshold. In other words, you agree to arbitrate, to but you say level. if it's over a million or over 10 right. million, we're going to allow an appeal. The issue then becomes what's it going to be appealed on, and does that mean you keep a record, and is it a, and will a court even take a jurisdiction on an arbitration appeal? But in an ideal world, right, that would be some way to have a check on that random decision that puts the company out of business by an arbitrator. But, you know, it's a good, you know, it's a good challenge. Yeah, it just occurred to me, you know, I mean, I know, you know, there are certain relationships that you have. I would imagine there are certain, maybe you don't want to say this, <laughs> but there are certain uh, maybe distributors or uh, subcontractors or whatever because of, Logistics, or because of uh, you know just the, the, the manufacturer of a product, or whatever, what have you. There aren't a lot of other good options. Maybe there are other options, but they're not necessarily ones that have traditionally proven to be mm-hmm. you know your best you know way to go with that. And I would see where you know if you had a thing a situation, you kind of go well. How can we need to preserve this relationship, but we also need to address this issue. So how can we do that in the least kind of uh, fracturous way possible? Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I, I think that there are going to be circumstances in any subcontractor, contractor relationship, or business vendor, or you know, business and customer relationship. Uh, you know, it's, it really depends on the nature of the dispute, right? It could be something there where both parties are involving a third party, you know, in an arbitration because maybe they generally. While they dispute, they, they just they generally need a third party to to decide it. Um, that, that not necessarily one party has wronged the other, and, and I think in those instances, I think you're exactly right. But I think it, once one party feels that another party has acted in bad faith, I think that's much more likely to uh, send a relationship into an irreparable situation. So, great. All right. Well, I want to thank our listeners for those questions and uh, and really enjoyed that discussion. As you can see, this is a multifaceted issue, but I think there's a lot to a lot of it pluses for arbitration. So if you've been one of those attorneys that's reluctant to use it, I, I'd urge you to think about whether there are opportunities, even if it's not your default position, where arbitration might make sense as a way to manage some of those costs and perhaps give you more control over those disputes. Now it's time for the less serious side of our show. It is the Bulldog Bites guest quiz. Chris, I've got four questions roughly, loosely related to your expertise. If you get those four all correct, you'll take home a, uh, a tumbler. Do we have the tumbler? Will we be sending the tumbler? I have no idea why. And Chris and I were on the same page, I think, in our confusion about... I totally left the other one... Oh, uh, yeah. We one. will get you a exciting so wonderful by default, right? And by default, yeah. That's my and, and because Sorry. we don't have that with us today, we'll we'll send it to you even if you miss a question. <laughs> Sounds um, good. Right. Our audience can rest assured, Chris has not seen these questions, so this is a <laughs> a genuine uh, a genuine quiz. So, as we established, along with being the nation's leading HVAC and plumbing service company, I know that American Residential Service also does electrical work, and so. Some of these questions relate to Ben Franklin, um, one of the <laughs> founders of electrical work. So uh, I know you're a scholar on Franklin, so this, <laughs> this shouldn't be a, uh, a challenge. So the first question is, Ben Franklin built his wealth as a printer, land speculator, and publisher of what famous annual book? An almanac? It uh, is an almanac. Yeah. It is. I'll give you the, at least uh, partial credit. To you. Can you remember the name? It's Poor Somebody's Almanac. Richard? Yes, yeah. 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 Well done. Yeah. Poor Richard's Almanac. That is correct. So he he also wrote one of the very first autobiographies ever written, and I just finished reading that. And it's an interesting, 
you know, it's amazing how times have changed. I mean, he's writing this in the 1700s, early 1700s about his life, but some of the things still hold true. I, I have I have a I have three children. The oldest is nine, and they're at the point where you know she probably knows. Or actually, probably given my answer there, and does know more about Ben Franklin. Than she I was. Now. Well, we're, we're maybe we need to rather. introduce a call a friend lifeline. Yeah, exactly. Call your nine year old daughter and, up yeah. and get help on uh, on Franklin. So you know that uh, biography is is uh, that autobiography is uh, notorious for being uh, revisionist history. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, and he does. I Franklin mean, was a like hasn't history. I know this is off a little bit, but hasn't it revealed that he was very, like you say, pretty uh, self righteous, self serving totally. uh, in a oh, lot of his. It, it's clear when you read it. It's written in that. Not that he wasn't a brilliant guy. Me, no, just, but he's basically let you tell me how virtuous. Let me tell you how right. virtuous I am. Right. And I, I read about these virtues and decided to be virtuous, and I'm virtuous. And if you want to be virtuous, you can be virtuous too. <laughs> so it, it is a very much a self praise. Mm-hmm. And he basically says, but I, which I kind of like. He says a lot of people say humility is a virtue, but. I think if you're good, you should let people know it. So he basically, even his writing, saying, this isn't very humble, but I'm a pretty awesome guy, and I did these awesome things, and I'm writing this autobiography so everyone knows about it. I'm the most humble guy I know. Uh, Even even (laughs) the the, uh, uh, autobiography itself is pretense. It wasn't an autobiography. It was a personal journal that he was writing to his son that... If you read it, you know right out of the gate, he was always intending for this to be a right. uh, a, a published thing that lots of people were going to get to see. Yep. But uh, his, and he says, like, you know, with that, you know, this, oh, I, I, I didn't mean for it, but people, you know, other people saw it and they loved it. And so I, I just went ahead and the people want The people want The people needed it. <laughs> The, the thing that struck me as a, one of the more interesting things in it, though, he actually would have groups of friends over to his house to basically have these philosophical discussions. So they would read something. I forget exactly what he called the club, but it was they, before they had library. So they would bring books and share books. And, and it, it struck me a little bit as a modern day book club. But instead of talking about the latest eat, pray, whatever, you know, whatever right. the latest popular book, they would be more philosophical things on, you know, what's the meaning of truth or what, what purpose of democracy. And I, I'm sure part of it was they were feeling really, up, you know, kind of proud of themselves for these philosophical things. But I did, reading that made me think that's something in modern society we really don't do. I mean, we may share on social media and everyone may post their, their viewpoints, but the idea of getting six or eight people together and actually having a philosophical conversation in my experience just that's never happened in my 52 years i mean i've had family discussions where we talk about these things but i've never and i've had friends and you may do one-on-one discussion of some political topic but getting all together you know getting eight people together and let's say talk about some issue of the day whether it's immigration or trade or uh, whatever would be an interesting exercise that it would, it would be obnoxious. That's why it doesn't happen. Yeah. It doesn't happen. It would be too well, and, and, and potentially dangerous given today's political climate. That's, right, that's <laughs> right. And the lack of privacy. Yeah. That's right. You, you would then be labeled a cell. All right. Um, so congrats. we'll give you credit on poor Richard's almanac. Because <laughs> you got almanac and, and Richard after, after some work. Some prompting. So, Franklin was also an inventor and tinkerer. If you need to call your daughter, just let me know. We can take a break. <laughs> Which of these is not something he created? Was it A, a toothpaste used to clean wooden teeth, B, a musical instrument made of glass and used by both Mozart and Beethoven, or C, a phonetic alphabet that eliminated redundant letters like C, J, Q, and W? So was it the toothpaste, the musical instrument, or the alphabet? I'm going to go with D. You're going to go with musical instrument? Yeah. I'm sorry. That's yeah. that's not what the answer it's we were looking for teeth. today. Yeah. It is the wooden teeth. Yeah, yeah you're saying the choice. Washington play there. Yeah, yeah. And, and I didn't. So um, yeah, and I guess that's appropriate since we're recording this on Washington's birthday. That's a, that's you know, right. That's a employee with the teeth. But the instrument apparently is called the glass harmonica and is essentially several spinning glass pulps that are played by rubbing a wet finger on it, kind of like what I picture as the the wine glass. 
Um, Interesting. A, a wine glass. So they'd be a blown glass bulb, and you'd run your finger around it, and that would create the sound. Um, and he also had a scheme for a revised alphabet in a nineteen in a seventeen seventy nine essay, but the public weren't that interested. They liked their <laughs> their C's and Q's, and so that that did not take off. But uh, he could improve efficiency on that. I thought that was really fascinating because I have since almost from grade school been like I don't understand why we have the letter Q. The letter Q does not exist in the English language without the letter U. So the letter should really be QU, like you have it with, you know, the Spanish language where you have LL is Ya. Um, and so, anyway, I thought that was yeah. really interesting. It is interesting. Yeah. And I've often, yeah, I've wondered why we have 26 letters, too. That seems like a strange number and why they're in that order, mm-hmm. right? My daughter was saying, why are letters in the order they're in, right? It doesn't really, it's not like the vowels are together. It's not like they're most common to less common. I don't, I don't have a good answer for that in terms of the... Is you there know, not some A's correlation disease. with the Greek? Al- I mean, at least at the beginning. I mean, A, B, Alpha, Beta. I mean, I don't know. I think you're right. I do I'm, think already, I'm already uh, yeah. uh, manifesting I'm sure my ignorance with the lack of uh, no, answers. That's, that's, that's a good hypothesis, though. I'm sure there is a historical origin. It's just compared to numbers, right? We have a decimal system, and it's you can kind of logically figure out why 1 through 10, and then you move the placeholder. There's a system, whereas the order... Why does, you know, R come where it comes? Well, I'm going to be thinking the rest of the day now if I can think of a word that doesn't have Q-U, that it just has Q. Yeah. There are a <laughs> couple you, for Scrabble fans out up. there. There are a few, like Q-I is actually a word. There are a couple of, uh, yeah. but, but you learn them in Scrabble because you get those points. This but is why I'm not going to go to your uh, strange. talk sessions. Because you're going to bring up the fact that QI is a word. And I'm going to be like, I'm I'm definitely not playing Scrabble. Check check your dictionary, (laughs) your words with friends. It's popular there. All right. Well, back to our quiz. We'll move um, to uh, fans of the show may remember that uh, Abraham Lincoln is in the Wrestling Hall of Fame. That was one of our quiz stumpers for one of our prior guests is uh, about Lincoln. You stumped me. So. Wow. Ben really? Franklin is also in a sports hall <laughs> of fame. Which hall of fame is Benjamin Franklin in? Is it the Basketball Hall of Fame, the International Swimming Hall of Fame, or the International Kiteboarding Hall of Fame? I'm drawn to kite here because of Franklin, but I'm probably taking the sucker. I'll go with kite, though. Goes with kite. I'm uh. sorry, Chris. <laughs> uh, we were looking for international swimming, swimming hall of fame. Really? The, the kite was a flyer that you bid on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah. So swimming. Apparently, one of his first inventions was a pair of wooden paddles that you put over your hands uh, for swimming. And he thought that swimming was very healthful and included messages encouraging people to learn different strokes in his Poor Richard's Almanac, that it's time to learn more swimming. He did claim to use a kite to skim across a pond, but as far as we can tell, did not actually earn him any spot in the Kiteboarding Hall of Fame, uh, which <laughs> is does there exist a kite now. Yeah. There really is a Kiteboarding Hall of Fame, but I, don't, I think the sport of kiteboarding was not organized or recognized until long after Frank well, I'm sure. yeah. was there. All right, our fourth and final question of the day. Like many of his fellow founding fathers, Franklin is credited with establishing several important public services, including which two of these three? Was it A, our country's first volunteer fire department, B, our country's first public library, or C, our country's first police department? So you get to pick two of the three, fire, library, and police. I want to say the first two. Fire, I'm pretty sure of, and I think library is the other one. Ding, so, ding, ding. Yeah. Yes, yes. He finishes strong. That's exactly right. 50%. You know, I think that's still you, an F. Yeah, most. it's an F, but, you know, you're giving yourself a full 50%. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah we were closer to 40 with that. <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. That's okay. You'll still enjoy that tumbler and think about it. We should probably put Franklin's picture on the other side. Winston the Bulldog on one side, Franklin on the other. But yes, uh, listeners may want to know that the first volunteer fire company in the country was organized in 1736. He also donated 116 books from his personal collection to form a small Massachusetts town library, which became the first public library in 1790. And the town was and remained named Franklin in honor of of Ben Franklin. So that is Franklin, Massachusetts, and the original public library. And it is amazing to think about life before libraries, right? With the whole, 
you know, you'd have wealthy individuals like uh, Jefferson with a, his own personal collection of books, but no public place to go and even learn basic stuff. So, Which, uh, have you seen Jefferson's? I, 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 I saw that in yes. Washington. It was, yeah. it was, and I don't know if it was a if it's a permanent exhibit now. I thought it was just a temporary one. It was either at the National Archives or Library of Congress. It was a, an unbelievable. It, it is remarkable. And supposedly he, he'd read them all, which, right. uh, you know. Yeah, it is. It is remarkable. It's remarkable he could read them all. It's also interesting to think about who do you have these dialogues and meetings with if most people can't afford to own the books. Well, the vast array of subject matter was what was just mm -hmm. blew me away. Right. I, I I had the same reaction. I mean, here we are in litigation, you know, and in law in general. I think we're told certainly in as outside counsel, specialize, specialize, specialize. Right. It's not enough to necessarily be even a litigator in a big firm. You know, what are your areas? Well, I do construction litigation, yeah. or business litigation, or commercial uh, cases. So there's this whole idea of specialize, move up the Meister curve on specialization. That's your unique value, and then you get to. You know, he's called a renaissance man, someone like Jefferson. Not only, he, I mean, he was, you know, a lawyer and did lawyer right. stuff and wrote thing, important things like Declaration of Independence, but founded University of Virginia, plus was a an accomplished vintner and would yeah. grow wines and uh, all, managed all his crops and right. and beer. And he, huge so he's, section on, yeah. on, uh, on farming and crops growing. Horticulture yeah. was, that, that stuck out. And architecture. I mean, he's designing new forms. Spinning chair. Yeah. This, I mean, this so he so he's inventing stuff for his house. He's designing architecture, working on buildings, setting up a university, becoming a president. I mean, it's just there's a scope, and that's what's interesting to me in this age of you've got to be really specialized. You had folks that were, you know, not only one profession but felt comfortable doing eight different things and would be regarded as competent in doing that whole range of things. And you kind of had to do it because there weren't that many other people around. So you had to be a surveyor if you owned a That's lot right. of land. You had to be a farmer, you know, if you had that land. If you wanted wine, you're going to have to make it because you couldn't afford to import it. So it's just, it is interesting how times have changed and we continue to move up that, that narrow curve. Well, congratulations on the quiz. I want to thank. It was a lot of fun. Got <laughs> it or not? Um, get you know, share it with the results with your daughter. I'm yeah, sure I, she'll I will. Be, you know, she she can come in. She can be our guest on the next uh, on the next one. Um, I want to remind our listeners: you can find previous episodes of Bulldog Bites and subscribe to this podcast by going either to wcsr.com/backslash/podcast or go to iTunes and Google Play. Search for Bulldog Bites and subscribe. Uh, we do have some more exciting podcasts coming forward. As usual, I really like to get questions from our listeners. Uh, you can send those to me by email, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Thanks for listening. Remember, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world out there. Chew carefully.